0: When I started building tech company, somehow the idea that I had to fundraise was just the only option forward, which I don't think it really is, especially if you're building something that's B2B. You have to work really hard on getting that, those customer checks.
1: Welcome to episode 31 of Fundraising Demystified. Today we have Vlada Lakina with us, former CEO and co-founder of ClassTag, an EdTech software company that helped democratize access to information in schools for parents. They raised 12 million before selling to school status. Lato walks us through how she immigrated to the US, climbed the corporate ladder, and then after becoming a parent, decided to launch and scale an EdTech startup to over 5 million users. She shares her secrets to raising capital without having a network, getting to profitability, and coming to the decision that selling the company was the best next step for the future of our company. As a reminder, to get notified of our weekly podcast and newsletters, be sure to subscribe at join.thunder.bc. Again, that's join.thunder.bc. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Lada Lakino with us. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Lada. Welcome.
0: Hi, Jason. So great to be here.
1: No, I'm excited to have you. So, Vlada, you're coming to us uh, from an EdTech company that raised about $12 million and, uh, you know, fortunately was able to recently sell this last summer. I'd love for you to just tell the audience about you, your background, and what led you to to starting ClassTech.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm originally from Ukraine, and I got to U.S. some um, 17 years ago uh, to do my MBA at Wharton and um, prior to that I had entrepreneurial background having grown in a family of entrepreneur and so had a few um, sort of early uh, juices in entrepreneurship uh, flowing and so of course I wanted to do the opposite after after uh, MBA program I went into corporate environment I spent a few years at Boston Consulting Group and then climbed the corporate ladder at Dell uh, two levels down from Michael Dell and sort of uh, that was a cool way to see what the big companies are up to and how different that world is. And at the end of it all, I decided it was time for me to go back to entrepreneurship. I had this entrepreneurial itch. And at the same time, my daughter started school in New York City. And so I was frankly shocked how outdated and fragmented parent communication was. and. In the day and age when we know what our friends have for breakfast on Instagram, whether we want it or not, not having the same level of connectivity with your own kids seemed crazy. And so um, I really wanted to use technology to help parents and teachers become partners in the kids' education. There is just so much research, decades of research that suggests that family engagement in kids' education is the number one predictor of student success it is actually twice more predictive of that success than family socioeconomic status. So uh, you can't really outsource that, and there are a lot of uh, ways that technology can help parents become partners in the kids' education. And so that's what ClassTech did. Uh, we um, allow teachers to have a free platform uh, that um, democratized that access and communication across automated translation, over 100 languages, and multi-channel reach. Um, that allowed any parent, whether they have access to technology or not, become involved and in, uh, a partner in the kids' education. And then we scaled to 5 million parents and teachers across the country, tens of thousands of schools, um, mm. raised uh, venture capital uh, three uh, three times or multiple times through that journey, uh, became profitable, and ultimately sold ClassTag this past summer to a great company called School Status, which has an important mission to combine analytics and family engagement to truly become the platform for student success. And so that was a great home for ClassTech.
1: That was a very good job of telling a very long story in a very concise manner. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. Um, so there, there's so much I want to dive into. Um, you know, one, just the EdTech category in and of itself is a difficult category to, to scale. It <laughs> sounds like you reached millions, which is incredibly impressive. You know, before we go into the usual like fundraising story, let, let's talk a little bit about how you built the business and, and how you went to market because, you know, that is a tough category to, to penetrate and, and to scale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing was that uh, one of the first people I met in my early uh, sort of fundraising journey was Brian Coyne, who led the New York Angels at the time. and he said, listen, come back to me with any other idea, but not this, right? Not education, do something else. It's a really, really tough one to crack. And it's effectively a graveyard of companies. And um, and um, boy, he was right. <laughs> it is a difficult category. Uh, but certainly, um, it's also a category that has a lot of opportunities. And as I, I joke, there is no lack of problems in education, there is a sort of lack of funds to actually solve them, right? Lack of willingness to pay. And so I think that's what makes scaling these solutions so challenging. And so uh, we went sort of the backdoor route. We figured out that we want to really start with the teachers who understand how critical that family engagement is. And that allowed us to scale really quickly. So for the for a long time, uh, we didn't have any sales force. So it was all digital through word of mouth. And Um, you know, Facebook groups, et cetera, sort of uh, more viral and digital growth that allowed us to scale uh, fast. Um, And then we leverage that uh, footprint we've built to upgrade to schools and districts uh, paying contracts with us.
1: That's impressive. Uh, So kind of like, I like to say, like the bottoms up, you know, kind of approach. Yeah, I had a similar experience at the no tech company I was at doing, uh, doing something similar. Bottoms up was how we kind of Made enough of a splash to then eventually have sales, so so it's good to hear that's still, that's the strategy that works. So, um, as you're scaling this business, you're obviously got some very blunt feedback, like we like you, just not your business <laughs> or the other you know, market. Um, so, how did you go about, you know, raising capital for this? What was kind of your strategy? Um, you know, what did you look at? How did you find the right investors?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So we had actually two bad things going for us so one was education which you know typically investors there is a big group of investors that wouldn't touch right and then others would be either educational investors that are focused on impact or more uh maybe generalist investors who happen to also invest in education right so i think education was one challenge the other challenge was actually our early monetization strategy which was about more than half of our business we uh, effectively were a media platform so we had parents and teachers we monetized uh, our sort of product-led motion the b2c motion through um brand partnerships and so at some point obviously media became another no-no so we had we we were winners we had both we had education and media in one so fundraising was absolutely fun um experience um I would say in, in the early days um, it was really tough. So and coming despite sort of my you know, business MBA and you know also being an immigrant founder, so my network wasn't that deep, right? I had to build it from from scratch. Um, I just uh, talked to anyone who would listen. Basically, I um, reached out to some people on LinkedIn who might know someone, someone who knows someone. Went to a ton of meetups, events, etc., just to build that sort of uh, breadth of connections and started to get um, angels. And then uh, we also, um, interestingly, when I was starting, I actually talked to someone who was a founder and later became an investor. And so they ended up leading our early round because she sold me was a deck um, and uh, she wished me luck and said, hey, 90% of people don't move past this stage. So if you move, you will actually be ahead of 90% of others. And so then a year later, we came back with like 30K MRR or something like that. And she said, well, you're the real deal and, um, you know, let's let's kind of get behind it. So uh, that was um, a big kind of breakthrough after knocking on many doors.
1: (laughs) You know, it's great hearing this story because so many, especially once a founder or a VC has gotten to a certain level of success, they really forget about this grind in the early days of you don't have the network, you don't have the track record, and you have to just put yourself out there and shake as many hands as you can, take as many Zoom calls as you can. But one thing I think you did was important is you, you, stayed in touch with some of those people and you kept them informed of progress and you know two giant gaps for a lot of founders is they don't get the progress you know they they don't actually build something that is worth funding but they still try to pursue funding or they forget to keep people updated and show the progress over time because that's ultimately what gets you know investors to to lean it and, and to look deeper into what what you're doing and that seems to be exactly what happened here so i'm really glad you you know, share that story because I feel that's often forgotten. Especially if you, you know, you have the exit, you have the success, and you, you just want to erase that from your mind. <laughs> you know that. that yeah. That, that yes. Part exactly.
0: Life. Like the, the trauma, the trauma of the past, <laughs> you put it behind. But um, someone actually shared this, um, which I think is uh, puts exactly what you said in a in a very sort of visual way. That investors are looking for a movie, not a picture, right? And so that what you're talking about sort of that motion and that progress and being the witness to that is what an investor wants to see and i think for me not sort of jumping ahead but for me uh those, i did monthly updates for both investors and non-investors and to me that was the tool that helped me raise
1: uh, so we actually just had a newsletter go out about how important those monthly updates are and just the cadence of updates because Again, it's a lot of founders that don't do it. They're not showing progress, so they don't have the updates. Um, and so it's important to kind of hold yourself accountable as a founder to do that. And so it's a great example as to the value of, uh, you know, doing that. So can you walk us through the history of basically those first couple checks that came in, how they came in, were you getting like a rolling kind of convertible node or safe type of thing, or did you have like a formal round process in the early days?
0: Oh, gosh, it was, uh, it was the first time I ever raised money. And so I, um, you know, you get a lot of advice, um, oftentimes bad, but you don't know better <laughs> at the time. And so I think the good of that advice, we did raise on safes and notes and on rolling cap and discount. And so with more money committed, we actually moved, um, we moved the discount down and we moved the cap up or some combination of thereof. And so actually, um, so we raised a few million dollars like that. It ended up sort of the oldest role. Um, and then when we came to actually do a price round, it was a complete disaster because then you had to, you know, had all this stack of notes that had all these different uh, discounts and whatnot. But anyway, this is, you know, technical more the lawyer's uh, problem. But they, the problem for the founder is that until it all converts, you actually don't know where you stand because the, the the calculations of all these stacks, if you have different terms, are really complex. Um, but it did, I think, help us sort of maybe save some equity um, because of the strategy we were doing. Um, but it also, I think, doesn't allow you to actually sit down and say, okay, now we raised, we stop, and then you. And then you just plan for the budget you have and the runway. So I think that, in hindsight, that that extra few bits of equity that we got uh, was not worth it. Worth the sort of the the um, variability of this budgets and decisions that you have to make in flight, depending on the budget you've got.
1: I hear the story more often than I think most people realize it's it's so true because again especially first-time founder like you you know as much as it'd be nicer to have that one round like do you think you would have been able to pull that off at the stage that you're at like that's you know it's a it's a hard burden
0: that's a hard burden and I think uh well the reason I sort of went that round is I think that route is I think because it was so hard to, to do um and I think um you know that Early days had to be this sort of what they call party rounds, right? When no one really leads, and you have to figure out how to, and that those rounds are really hard to navigate because nobody wants to be the first check. And how do you actually talk to people in a way that makes them all comfortable to come in? And so it's a lot of uh, a lot of dancing.
1: <laughs> so what were some of your dance moves? You know, to kind of get into the tactics. Like, how did you kind of? overcome that because that's that's everyone's problem They're for you know that pre seed stage you know that early you know kind of first time founder you don't have that track record whereas like the next time you go to another company it might just all flood in at once or easy it's done you have a track record exit it's easy but you Mm -hmm. know that first time it's tough so what were some of the called dance moves that you used
0: (laughs) well the first (laughs) pirouette that i used was the fact that you have to have a number of plans right and so I think many times, and I, I get this question a lot from founders, it's like, well, you know, I will want to raise $5 million and then they go and talk to an angel. I was like, that makes no sense because an angel is never going to write a check big enough and then they will wait for the rest of the round to come together. So if you're going, um, I had, you know, two or more plans at all times. So if I went to talk to an angel or someone small, I did have a... in an interesting path forward for me was a smaller round that allowed me to do X, Y, Z and show, um, you know, certain level of milestones and outcomes if I were to raise, let's say, I don't know, a million dollars in total, right? So then when I'm talking to an angel who can give me 300K, he are like, well, I can see how we, you know, can put together this party round, right? Uh, really quickly at this early stage. But if you're talking to a, a large fund then you know and talking to them about raising a million that's also wasting their time because if your appetite is only to you know get that far then it's not um it's not how their fund works they need to deploy large amounts of capital and they need to show the return on that and so they need to see a whole different plan it doesn't mean and so i think that duality is really important and um, I think that many founders, from my experience, find it difficult to actually think in two dimensions or a number of dimensions at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough journey navigating that, but yeah, you know, it seems like it worked out successfully for you. You were able to trickle in, um, I guess, what were some of the stages of the rounds? So you raised uh, kind of that first conglomerate mm-hmm. Frankenstein round. Uh, what, would, yes. what did that conclude at when you raised the? Was it a seed that was the formal price, or was it uh, Series A?
0: Well, it's uh, so it stayed as an as notes, and so that was seed. Then we had sort of something we called I think seed plus, and then we had an A. So gotcha. those two were priced rounds. So the they kind of cleaned up the the notes.
1: Did you know that most founders waste days of their lives chasing the wrong investors? Well, as a founder you know your time is your most valuable resource don't waste it on the investors that aren't going to write you a check here at thunder we built a free tool that identifies exactly which vcs are worth your time to pursue we score your company against 3,500 vcs and family offices that have been vetted and are actively writing checks into companies like yours get your ai recommended list of investors that will look like this absolutely free by creating a free profile at thunder.vc you can upgrade to premium to download this list export it to any tool you wish and get their contact information and access the data on their portfolio companies to map out a path to warm intros and build your founder network sign up for free at thunder.vc now let's get back to the show so after you get to let's say the all to the seed plus where it's more of a formal round, I guess what what point were you at the company at this stage, like in terms of traction and velocity, and what was that fundraising cycle like compared to the you know previous?
0: Yeah, um, well, it's certainly I think um, in the early days, right? It was a question of network because I just didn't know any investors at all, and so I had to really build that. Once I had investors, I was really lucky to get um a couple of uh really connected uh, folks brilliant um founders themselves who could empathize with the journey and what it takes and so uh they were really instrumental in later stage fundraising and uh, introducing me to the right people and so from that point on it stopped being a question of getting in front of the people I wanted to get in front of and started being a question of more continuing to overcome these structural barriers that we had, such as education and media, Um, and then just having a great business that's, um, you know, is hitting those 2x, 3x expectations. So whatever, you know, users or revenue, especially increasingly revenue, the closer to today we get. (laughs) And, um, and then, you know, just building a great business.
1: That's pretty much what it is. It, it is coming down to that point of just making an attractive business for people to come into and, and having those relationships early days to nurture and get to that point. So what's something that, you know, knowing that the knowledge you have now and the experience that you have now, like, what are you going to do differently next time for your, you know, if you ever do it again?
0: Well, I think that when I started building a tech company, um, somehow the idea that I had to fundraise was just um, the only option forward, which I don't think it really is, um, especially if you're building something that's B2B. Uh, you have to work really hard on getting that those customer checks and getting customer funding, as I would call it, um, before you can um, spend the same amount of effort in your investor funding um, because that's just really proves the business model. It um, saves you so much time, um, you know, going after investors, especially if you're a first-time founder and you uh, don't have an existing track record. So I think that um, thinking about monetization at the foundation of the business, and ideally getting those uh, customers signing the checks uh, before you actually go to fundraise um, for a first-time founder. That's um, that's really key, and and then actually questioning whether you need that uh, funding or not, or thinking about various other options. I think I just didn't. For me, it was oh, you are building a software company, so you know that's what you do, but. You know, I didn't put a lot of thought into sort of what other optionality exists.
1: I really hope you're mentoring other founders. I feel like the lessons you're sharing, the experience you're sharing, is so valuable that I hope you're finding a way to give it back uh, to to other founders. Um, I believe you mentioned you 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 have your own podcast, so I'd love to talk about that towards the end for other founders to
0: kind of yeah, learn more absolutely. And stick to. Thank you, Jason. That's a good <laughs> entry for me, but. Uh... <laughs> I, yes, it gives me a lot of joy uh, because I did learn a lot of lessons and I know that uh, folks that I invite are all um, founders, uh, CEOs, and they learned a lot of lessons too, uh, but um, most importantly, the show is called CEO Unboxed and it's really talking about the, the humans, the leaders behind those hum- company headlines and how did they persevere, what brought them to entrepreneurship, what empowered them to power through all the uh all the roller coaster rides that everyone goes through right there is no such thing as a smooth ride in entrepreneurship and so how do you keep your head cool and how do you still stay happy and well or maybe they had some crisis moments most of them did everyone did and so how did they actually turn things around and so that's uh, what the show is about so it's a co unbox on spotify and all the other podcasting platform and uh, youtube as well
1: awesome we'll make sure to link those in the show notes so before um you know we kind of introduced you on the show one thing i want to go back to is the exit you know that's a pretty critical event for any founder and i want to understand at the point of basically when did you start engaging the idea of the sale? Were you approached? Did you guys pursue it? And uh, yeah, kind of walk us through that journey and, and what that looked like.
0: Well, I hope that I don't get um, <clears throat> in, in trouble for, for saying it. But I think what defined actually the exit journey and the fact that for me it was extremely smooth uh, because we had the first process that Um, blew up in my face. And um, that was a very painful and important learning. And I definitely want um, as many founders to learn from it as possible. I certainly know there are a lot of close uh, founders who learn from it firsthand. But um, I think that the actual process of selling uh, tag was very smooth. We had reached the board uh, decision to do it in um, in fourth quarter of 2022. And then uh, we hired a banker. Uh, we had interest in parties that we knew were interested from before. We reconnected with those parties. We had new parties come in. We ran a pretty smooth process, a lot of meetings, a lot of um, conversations um then we got the LOIs we selected the party we went to uh, exclusive agreement and then voila <laughs> the company was sold so it was pretty smooth was it really that smooth
1: that sounds too smooth that sounds uh, you know pretty clean i guess you know i guess taking a step back then is like what what made you go to the board or what brought the board together to even want to dis- you know pursue uh, uh, a sale
0: yeah I would say yeah. from a sort of a market uh, landscape perspective, there were a number of things that were happening, and so obviously COVID was a very um, important catalyst for uh, many things, including education, right? And in one way, the, all of a sudden, family engagement became more important than it's ever been, which is good for us because we're a family education, family communication platform. But what happened was that um, because we were building a bottom-led motion, all of a sudden these districts said, hey, this is actually our decision. We want to be in charge because this family engagement is a key priority and key function of our district. And so that's how we started doing um, and actively growing our B2B SaaS motion through kind of the product-led side, but it also meant that Uh, we all of a sudden, to actually uh, do the things that we wanted to do if we were to stay independent, had to build a brand new go-to-market focused on these districts. And so that means um, massive sales team, uh, long sales cycles with the districts. It's going to take a long time to materialize. Uh, That meant raising uh, more, uh, more capital. And so we Um, you know, looked at that and looked at, frankly, what's best for these districts? What's best for these districts is to have best of breed together. And so uh, given the consolidation in the market, it seems like the uh, really a thoughtful uh, uh, opportunity to become part of this bigger ecosystem that has other components such as attendance and analytics that we didn't offer and has this big and powerful go-to-market muscle um, to bring our solution to many more millions of people who need it.
1: No, it's a very thoughtful approach in terms of looking at the market and kind of what your options might be and and being able to pursue it. Did did these firms, uh, in terms of the potential acquirers, they kind of come at you cold? Did you already have relationships with them? Did you kind of pursue them? What was that experience like?
0: Yeah, I would say over the years I've gotten I've talked to many of them because they reached out, their investment bankers reached out, their funds reached out. So over the years, I've been um, pretty much picking up the phone when they called. And so um, meeting them at conferences and like any industry, it becomes actually small over time if you're out there and meeting people. Right. So I do know uh, a lot of people in education and they I knew about the company and um, certainly knew that it's a great platform that so many teachers and parents love it. And so uh, I would say it was um, and it was also quite unique because it was sort of a new generation solution that's really built for the modern uh, world as opposed to sort of a lot of um, old school solutions that um, are still out there um, and have a pretty large install base. But, you know, they are old school. Uh, so that was a great opportunity.
1: Yeah. I think the underlying theme here, uh, what I'm hearing is constantly expanding and maintaining your network and building a great business. I think those are the, the two key takeaways of what you excel at really, really well. Um, yeah, I think that your insights have been you know, incredibly valuable to, to any founder that's thinking about mm-hmm. it because I think this is something that a lot of founders struggle with in terms of how to allocate their time and okay. build a great business.
0: You know, have happy customers, 100%. generate revenue. <laughs> yeah, easy, exactly. Right? Build a business, not a startup. As they say. Yeah, <laughs> ah,
1: good. Well said, well said. You got some good nuggets in here. The, uh, <laughs> the investors want to see, uh, they want to watch a movie and not see a picture and uh, you know, build a business, not a startup. I think that's the underlining sentiment of this market right now. It's treating a lot of called startups not very well, but favoring businesses, real businesses that have real revenue, real you know margins to to grow and scale. So um, you know, that all said, what would be some parting advice to, to our founder community to, you know, kind of what should they be taking into consideration beyond what you shared to this point?
0: Yeah, I want to spend uh, just a moment on uh, what not to do in the M&A process. <laughs> Ooh, all right. um, I think that's quite relevant for the audience. I think one thing is a lot of founders get excited when they get these calls or emails from private equity firms or whatnot. Uh, interested in you, um, that's their job, right? Their job is to reach out and um, and even sign this LOIs and go into diligence. They are doing their job. Uh, your job is to continue building a great business. And so um, I think it's really important to, even if they're not bad actors, but their job is this and your job is that, right? And you cannot afford for you or your team to get distracted, especially if it's an in inbound. Um, and um, the other thing I would say related to it is there are a lot of private equities who would reach out and they don't have a champion within. If it's a tuck on acquisition, they don't have a champion as a CEO or leader of that um, main company. Uh, that's a huge red flag. Don't move forward unless you have a really good uh, conversation and, and relationship and partnership with that um, CEO as a, as a champion because the risk of that deal falling apart at various points is going to be so much higher. So if you want to get on a plane, fly, see them, have them fly, whatever you need to do, uh, don't get into the... Deals that don't have an underpinning relationship in them. I think so that I, I think would
1: be my advice. I, I think me. that's incredible yeah. advice, and I, I kind of want to unpack it a little bit more to help some founders understand that haven't been through an M and A process. You know, kind of under, explain the sponsor aspect because you know, every deals can happen in a bunch of different ways. There's you know a corporate deal where it's like corp dev team, and then there needs to be internal sponsorship inside the company, and then there's private equity that do a on to an existing portfolio kinds of interesting deal-making that can happen. But to be specific with what you brought up in terms of that that kind of sponsor, uh, can you elaborate on what that person's role is, who they are, and why they're involved in the process?
0: Yeah. So I think it, it just talks about sort of as a, as a way of qualifying the interest, right? So if the interest comes from a sort of purely financial standpoint, which would typically be a corp dev or um or a private equity fund, right? They're broadly scanning the market. Their job is to evaluate various opportunities. So that level of interest is, let's call it, has a probability of, I don't know, 3% of actually (laughs) materializing. Then next level is when you have a corporate sponsor who might be a CEO of this acquiring company or maybe head of that department, if you're talking about Google or, you know, larger organizations like that who, um, you know, would have a specific request from that person, whomever that champion is, because during the diligence, during the negotiation, there is always something, right? As you said, I don't believe you that it was smooth, right? There is always something that happens, right? Some turbulence that occurs, and that sponsor and your relationship with that sponsor is what makes or breaks the deal. And um, most of the deals, uh, I don't know if the exact stat, maybe you do, Jason, but vast majority of deals, they fall apart. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I was absolutely clueless about it going in. Um, I wish that so that's um, so going in, uh, you need to know that what you have is a great business and that's what needs to survive whatever, whatever deal you are entering
1: is well said and I've personally been through some deals that fallen apart I got all kinds of horror stories of deals closing the morning up bottles of champagne everything's ready on ice we're like let's close and then we wake up to a text saying deals did uh, you know that's it's very much a reality I think that's very valuable advice of how you know it shouldn't be you know keeping the business going shouldn't be plan B it should be plan A Right, and a. you know if you sell then you know you keep working on the business until that trigger point actually right. happens, and then you make the necessary adjustments as opposed to preparing for the sale and only if the sale goes through. Um, so I think that is a, a some wise advice for for any founder that finds himself building something valuable, and you know stay focused on that valuable asset. <laughs> right.
0: And and maybe just last thought on this is as you think about presenting your plans and financial projections forward. You always want to think about how you would outperform the plan. So, you want to be optimistic, but you don't want to be overly aggressive, right? Because as you go into diligence, the last thing you need is giving more reasons to renegotiate. Uh, experienced people out there tell me every deal is, you know, there is an attempt to renegotiate it. And if you're outperforming your plan relative to what you claimed, that's your biggest lever. Uh, that you have in your pocket to actually uh, suggest that the negotiation would be in your favor if if they so desire.
1: (laughs) Yes. No, that's good advice. So, um, Lada, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. We talked a little bit about your podcast. Can you remind everyone where they can learn more about just how to follow you, where to learn more about your podcast?
0: Absolutely. So I'm uh, quite active on LinkedIn, so you can find me by my name, Vladelotkina. I also have a CEO Unbox podcast that's on YouTube, Spotify, and um, you can find me there. I hope to connect with many of you.
1: No, yeah, no, I think uh, any smart founder should be also listening to you because I feel your level of advice, you're fresh out of it too. So you, you're very, very much close to Uh, the details of what goes on and I think everything you shared was incredibly accurate to what is very common for a lot of founders to experience Uh, and you built a great business you know people were coming to you and I think that's the the number one thing that most founders should focus on so know, really appreciate you joining us on the show today and, and sharing your your amazing experience
0: thank you it was super fun thank you